Hi guys, we have here today with us Dr. Patrick Lee Miller. He is a philosopher teaching at Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is also the author of Becoming God, Pure Reason in Early Greek Philosophy and co-editor of Introductory Readings in Ancient Greek and Roman, Philo uh, Roman Philosophy. And he also writes at Quillette. Uh, he also wrote several articles to Quillette and, uh, for Quillette and I will leave them in the description box for you to read because they're very interesting. So how are you doing, Dr. Dr. Miller? I'm doing just fine, thank you. <laughs> okay, so um, to start off with, I would like to talk a bit about the differences between uh, pre-Socratic philosophy and philosophy since Socrates, because it seems to me, and I might be wrong, that uh, uh, the pre-Socratic philosophers were much more focused on uh, ontology, the nature of being, the nature of reality, and so on. And since Socrates, that shifted a bit toward ethics and how to live the good life and so on and so forth. And apart from that also, the fact that it seems to me that the reason as was applied by Socrates and his followers is much more a dialectical reason than reason as applied by the pre-Socratics. Okay, so that's a common interpretation of that period. Uh, you, you see it in Cicero, for example, a famous quotation of Cicero is that he said, Socrates took philosophy down from the heavens and put it in the cities of men. Uh, but if you look at, say, the dozen figures who are most prominent in the so-called pre-Socratic period, it's not really true. So take the Pythagoreans, uh, who had a huge influence on Plato, and take Pythagoras, if you think he existed and that the stories attributed to him are true. Uh, there was a, an institute or at least a community that they formed that had ethical precepts. Uh, you know, it was connected to uh, mathematical thinking, and they actually had a feud between those who cared more about the ethical precepts and those who cared more about the mathematical teaching, and, and they even split. So the Pythagoreans are a counterexample to that. Um, but it's true that in Socrates you get an emphasis on the virtues, especially, and you know at least as Plato presents them, a, almost a dialogue each on the virtues. When it comes to dialectic, I don't think that's it. That's even less true because uh, you've got a figure like Zeno, for example, the student of Parmenides. So Parmenides writes this poem, which has mystical significance as well as logical rigor. But his student, Zeno, didn't write poems, but simply engaged in very rigorous logical paradoxes and arguments. And so he's sometimes considered the inventor of dialectic. And uh, probably the starkest counterexample to the idea that, um, you know, argument of dialectic is born with Socrates would be the sophists. So some people don't consider them part of the pre-Socratic period, although when I published my textbook that collects sources uh, that I co-edited, as you mentioned in the introduction, I include the sophists as part of the pre-Socratic tradition. They're certainly aware of so-called pre-Socratic doctrines like atomism and so on. They're aware of arguments made by Zeno, and their purpose is different, however. They're using logical argumentation, uh, sometimes quite concretely, to win court cases or to make persuasive political speeches. And they teach that to people, and then they also start theorizing about 
teaching uh, those things or about you know how to make logical arguments and so on. So you can see Socrates in a way as a synthesis of uh, those various what I, what I was calling counterexamples, things that were in pre-Socratic philosophy. He combines them in a new way. I, I don't want to deny the novelty of Socrates, but he's he's not quite a lightning rod the way he's sometimes portrayed. The way you get a sense from that name, pre-Socratic philosophy, as if there was a certain thing before Socrates, then Socrates arrives like a lightning bolt and things are different thereafter. Mm -hmm. so, so you don't agree with the division we usually make between pre-Socratic philosophy and Socratic and post-Socratic philosophy? I don't, although I think there's some truth to it. I think Nietzsche was uh, more right. Nietzsche was a classical philologist that is a student of classical literature and including philosophy before he became the Nietzsche we know of, the, the, the Nietzsche, the philosopher. But The Birth of Tragedy, his first published book, that uh, sort of shows his how steeped he was in classical learning. And I mention him because he gave a series of lectures at uh, Basel where he taught for 10 years while he was writing that book and, and beforehand. And uh, his title for that, those lectures was the Pre-Platonic Philosophers, or at any rate, that's what he called that period. So Pre-Platonic, Pre-Plato, in Nietzsche's mind, and I think it's more accurate, if you want to look for a lightning rod in Greek philosophy, it's Plato, namely, or a great divide. Uh, it's what, who comes before Plato and who comes afterwards. Mm -hmm. So let's stick to Plato. What do, okay. would you say are the main differences from Plato onwards and perhaps even with Aristotle and so forth and all the people that preceded them? Yeah, well, uh, you know, so many, so many. Uh, if I have to pick one to start with, we can talk about others, but I would say the major one is that he uh, really highlights, I'm trying to think, is he the first, perhaps there are exceptions, but really highlights spiritual reality. So uh, most, if not all, of the pre-Socratic philosophers are materialists. I'll, I'll stick with most, you know, and you'll probably be able to find a few exceptions. But, you know, when we think of ancient philosophy, usually it's Plato and Aristotle we have in mind, and so we think of it as a period of uh, you know, in Plato's case, it's very clear, the immaterial forms and material reality. But the so-called pre-Socratic or pre-Platonic philosophers, they're mostly materialists. So the atomists are a major school in uh, that period, or at least the, those two figures. And even their competitors uh, were materialists as well. So even someone like Parmenides, who is sometimes understood to have uh, argued that all is one, it doesn't seem to be uh, um, a spiritual notion of all is one. Uh, you know, it has religious significance, clearly, because it's set in a mystical poem, but his, his one thing uh, seems to be material. He describes it as a sphere. Mm -hmm. I see. Uh, yeah. So, and, and would you say that Aristotle, for example, could be considered the first philosopher to apply a naturalistic approach to things? Yes, well, so those uh, pre-Platonic philosophers were naturalistic. I mean, they were naturalistic to the point of being materialistic. And then, uh, yeah, yeah, but here I, I was trying to make a differentiation between uh, materialism as the, the pre-Socratics, like, uh, let's yes, say, had yeah. it, uh, and uh, the naturalistic approach for, uh, Aristotle tried to uh, apply, for example, to the study of biology. 
I see. Okay. So he's certainly the first to make uh, serious, systematic biological studies. I mean, I, I think that's one of his main innovations. Plato uh, does some so-called natural philosophy in the Timaeus, uh, which was the only dialogue to survive through what we consider the Middle Ages in the West. You know, Plato's rediscovered uh, through contact with the Muslim world, and the texts are returned to Western Europe. But for a long time, the Plato's Timaeus is the only text that the Western Europeans had. And that's a text of natural philosophy. That's a lot of speculation about the, the components of the natural world. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, and, uh, okay, I will say something now and you will say if you agree with it or not. Um, so, uh, my idea is that um, from Plato onwards, uh, we've been trying to apply in philosophy um, a much more uh, um, uh, philosophy has been trying to be much more centered around uh, reasoning processes, me okay. mental, mental processes and so yeah. on. Uh, and perhaps, and I think uh, Nietzsche also gives an interpretation similar to this about the pre-Socratics, uh, before, uh, even if they tried to interact with the world, the world around them materialistically, wouldn't you say that it was a bit more of a psychological approach, even perhaps a phenomenological approach? Well, you know, uh, sometimes when people want to say what is it that differentiated so-called pre-Socratic philosophy from what came before, you know, as opposed to what we're doing, we're talking about, all right, take it as a given, then what was the change afterwards? But if you want to distinguish the earliest Greek philosophers, Thales, for example, or Anaximander, or Anaximenes, what distinguished them from the tradition that they came out of? Usually what people pick, and it's as good a candidate as any, is uh, reason. So you read Hesiod, or obviously Homer, and you're not going to get uh, arguments of the sort that you can see in an Anaximander or an Anaximenes, and, and, and in the reports we have about Thales, which are, are too fragmentary, I think, to, to know much. So, you know, if you want to say, what is it that gives birth to Greek philosophy? It's uh, an attention to reason uh, in its own right, that not requiring a mythological basis, and uh, the idea that there's some kind of salvation to be found in reason itself. So the, my, my book that you mentioned, Becoming God, Pure Reason in Early Greek Philosophy, argued that you know, they all, pretty much all of them saw reasoning as a, a moral imperative. That is to say that this was this new life to which they devoted themselves, and uh, more specifically, that they could achieve some kind of divine status through this. Now, not all of them, certainly, but I, you know, there, there are enough of them to say this was a major component of this period. And in that book, if we're talking about reason, I talk about how they disagreed about what reason was. So that, to me, that's the interesting uh, debate in that period. Not so much, is reason important? They, they nearly all agreed about that. Uh, I would say they all agreed about that. No, no, reason's important, and most of them thought you can uh, achieve some kind of divine status through the rational life, but what's interesting to me uh, is how they disagreed about what reason is. Mm -hmm. uh, and th there was an early period in philosophy where uh, philosophy was very much related to religion and particularly polytheistic religions like the Greek one and so on. Uh, yeah. Would you say that uh, through that process, 
you cover up in your book uh, of what you call becoming God, uh, that what people were trying to do as well, apart from using reason and materialistic approaches and so on, uh, was to uh, try to play a bit with certain aspects of, of their psychology, of human psychology, that can even, uh, that were even represented by, for example, the very many gods they had. Yes, well, uh, Parmenides is interesting here because, again, some people will, will pinpoint him as the first truly rational figure in this tradition. They'll look at some of the earlier ones and say, well, they're, they're elements of philosophy or reasoning, but they're mixed up too much with mythology and, and we don't have enough evidence. or whatever. So Parmenides is sometimes considered one of these great divides. And he's interesting in so many ways, but in this context, because he was a priest. And as I alluded to earlier, he wrote a poem rather than a, a, a treatise, such as you find in Aristotle. And that poem had um, two main sections, or perhaps even three main sections. Uh, the latter section, which we mostly lost, was natural philosophy. It, we would call now science, inquiry into the phases of the moon and so on. And we have enough fragments to sort of get a sense that that's what it talked about. And that was the bulk of the poem. Then there's the, the first section, that was called On Opinion, and the first section was called On Truth, and uh, one interpretation of that is that's an investigation of what's real and how we can know it or what knowledge is, and the conclusion seems to be uh, that, you know, all we can know and all that there is is that there's this one thing, which I mentioned earlier, this sphere. But that, you know, if I could subdivide that, that's, um, that's begun with a preface of a mystical journey that this young man takes with a priestess. And so the whole philosophy, whether it's natural philosophy or if we, if we like ontology and epistemology and so on, it's all presented in the guise of a mystical journey. And, and it's all a poem, too. So, I mean, to step back, then I would say that they're coming out of this mythological religious tradition, and some of them are dropping it all together, certainly by the 5th century, but others of them are keeping uh, major elements of it. And so, again, that's something I talk about in my book, is how they're, they, they're giving or you know, maintaining this religious purpose for philosophy, but it's uh, less cultic, it's less about tradition, and it's more about the individual and reasoning. Mm -hmm. I see. So, yeah, uh, and I would also like to talk about other aspects that come from ancient philosophy, but now ju just to make a point here, sure. uh, because there are a lot of people uh, that tend to say, particularly scientific people, and I refer, for, for example, to Steven Pinker, that, that imply that uh, things like uh, reason and the idea of individuality and even the scientific approach itself uh, yes. He talks about them as if those ideas and those methods of thinking and so on uh, appeared uh, during or, uh, or from the beginning of the Enlightenment onward. Yes. Uh, and he, he doesn't seem to, to recognize that uh, many of those ways of thinking and ideas uh, are much more ancient than that, right? Yeah, uh, so I'd like to say two things on, on this. 
uh, one about Steven Pinker in particular, and then a more general point about the tradition of Greek philosophy. So um, I agree with what you say about Pinker, and, and I don't fault him for that. He doesn't pretend to be a historian of philosophy. I mean, he's originally a cognitive psychologist, and he's doing really important work, I think, and, and as a public intellectual and cultural criticism. Yeah. Um, you know, and so the claims that he makes about, about history of philosophy, uh, I take those with a grain of salt. Uh, here's an example to illustrate, I think, the truth of what you're saying, though, where he talks about reason, he has in mind uh, a particular notion of reason. So I think, you know, from what I can discern from his writings, uh, he seems to have a, a, a roughly Humean notion, H-U-M-E-A-N, David Hume's notion of reasoning. Mm -hmm. So uh, I read an interview with him last week in which he said, reason is, I don't know that he used this word inert, I'm not going to quote him exactly, but he made it seem like all reason does, practically speaking, is help us calculate how to get what we want. That, you know, we have our desires, and then reason helps us achieve the objects of our desires. Now, that's explicitly David Hume's notion of reason. He's not the first to think that, but he's really the poster child for that notion of reason, uh, which we call in philosophy instrumental reason. That reason is just a tool to get us what we want. And the famous quotation from Hume on this is, "'Tis not contrary to reason to prefer the uh, scratch, to prefer the destruction of the world to the scratching of my finger." In other words, reason itself doesn't have any goals. We, it's just a tool that we use to achieve our goals. Well, it, you know, you can see that operative in the sophists, for example. They're very clever people. They're rational. Uh, in, in that sense of getting what they want. And most of them seem to want money or fame or power, and they're very good at using reason to get those things. Plato, in his reaction against the sophists, is developing, is proposing a notion of reason that's substantive. So it's, I would, you know, it's typically called substantial reason versus instrumental reason, where reason itself has goals, uh, the truth about the world and goodness, uh, which it takes to be in the Platonic uh, philosophy very closely associated with truth. So reason's got inherent goals uh, for Plato. And, and it seems to me that position is just not even on Pinker's map. Again, I don't, I don't fault him. He's not a scholar of ancient philosophy. But I think that uh, Plato was right about reason. So when I read those passages, I sort of wish I could have a long conversation with with Steven Pinker about that. Now, he's married to a Platonist, so I, d I doubt I could have more influence on him than his wife does. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably right. But even, even about instrumental reason and human, so on and so forth, uh, because, for example, from the work of Jonathan Haidt, uh, he, he draws a lot from uh, a metaphor that I think was used by Hume as well, uh, the, about the elephant and the rider, right? Uh, about reason being the rider yes. uh, yeah. and the emotions being the elephant. And so as, as humans being driven primarily yeah. by emotions and reason coming secondhand just to rationalize Yes. Uh, the things yes. we've done. Uh, so, yes. so even the the concept of reason as something that is somehow separated from uh, emotions and the rest of the body, it, yes. it's it's really strange to have, right? I just missed the last part of what you said. What was the last uh, sentence? Uh, I said, really uh, yeah, uh, I said that uh, the idea of 
reason as being something that occurs in the human mind completely separated from emotions right. and the right. rest of the body, even right. that is a very strange uh, notion, right? These days it's considered strange, that's right. So I think the default uh, approach to reason is roughly the Humean approach. And, and I'm glad you mentioned Jonathan Haidt. I mean, those are two great public intellectuals of our time. But they both are assuming something like a British empiricist model of, uh, of reason and of, of epistemology. And, you know, they do great work, but I think uh, when it comes to the weaknesses in their work that I find, they're usually deeply rooted in that British empiricist approach. Because I think that, you know, never mind for the moment, Jonathan Haidt and Steven Pinker just looking at uh, problems uh, in epistemology between, say, David Hume and, and Plato, I think Plato's the clear victor. Let me give you an example, uh, and let's go back to Jonathan Haidt's use of that elephant and the rider example. Uh, you know, he presents all kinds of great data about human behavior, especially in politics, that illustrates that, that metaphor, that claim about the relationship between reason and passion. But uh, if, you, uh, if you take that as well, there we go. That's what reason is. It's always following the emotions. Then you have to say, well, I, Jonathan Haidt, as a writer of this book, as a person who makes these inquiries, I'm merely following my emotions and I'm merely using reason to rationalize what I feel or what I desire. And the, I, you know, that may be true. I, I, you'd have to look deep inside his soul to know whether or not that's true. But if he's practicing as a scientist, which I think he is from all the external evidence that I have, if he's practicing as a scientist, to make sense of the scientific endeavor, there has to be an orientation uh, towards truth, which of course can be corrupted by the emotions and the appetites and, and other non-rational desires. But uh, if it's to be possible at all, it has to be possible to make an inquiry that's not corrupted. Mm -hmm. Right. But, but what I was trying to say here is that on the one hand that uh, it is really not correct for Steven Pinker to try to imply that reason as we have it uh, from a scientific perspective, let's say, uh, comes from the Enlightenment because it's much more ancient than that. Yes. And on the other hand, uh, uh, to... Uh, espouse an idea of reason uh, yes. because of what we know nowadays as yes. as being something that can operate uh, is, is separately from emotions and yes. the rest of the body yes yes that allows me to make a point that i i wanted to make earlier and that i just let slip um, one of the things that I love about studying ancient philosophy, especially ancient Greek philosophy, is that there is just a whole panoply of positions. So um, people who are sort of roughly familiar with ancient philosophy, they're usually, as I mentioned earlier, they're usually thinking of Plato and Aristotle. And I would say those are two of the greatest of the figures. So if you have to study two, uh, you've done well. But they're just two of several dozen figures. And, you know, half a dozen figures deserve to be in the same conversation as Plato and Aristotle. I mentioned Parmenides earlier, Heraclitus as well. You need to know the atomists and so on. So uh, I want to agree with you and say that when reason gets discussed by, you know, public intellectuals like Jonathan Haidt and Steven Pinker, very influential people doing, as I mentioned, a lot of good work. First of all, they're usually presupposing a particular notion of reason that in those two cases seems to me the British empiricist notion of reason. Uh, and then secondly, that, that British empiricist reason, in, in notion of reason, like other early modern notions of reason, is usually deliberately trying to resurrect 
thoughts about reason and knowledge and inquiry and so on from antiquity. I mean, the early modern period is crudely, not always, but often, a reaction against medieval and scholastic philosophy. And uh, as a result, in order to prosecute that reaction, uh, they're, they're reviving uh, neglected traditions from antiquity. So, and this is happening in the Renaissance even earlier, but a, a very good example of this is atomism. So, uh, one of the most important um, ancient philosophical texts in, uh, you know, the early modern period, uh, perhaps even the late Renaissance, I'm not a scholar of that period, so I wouldn't be able to say precisely when, but someone like Gassendi. Uh, one of the most important ancient uh, philosophical texts for them is Lucretius's On the Nature of Things, an atomistic inquiry into nature. And... Um, you know, he's an Epicurean, and the Epicureans are, uh, Epicurus is after Aristotle, so he's, he's aware of Aristotle, he's aware of Plato, he's got to react to that to some extent, but he's reviving what we're calling earlier pre-Socratic philosophy, the Democritus and Leucippus, these two atomists from uh, Socrates' lifetime, and even Plato's lifetime. So, uh, that's a long, convoluted story, but to say that Yes, I mean, I guess I sometimes share what seems to be a common frustration with you, if I understand you correctly, that, uh, you know, recent discussions, even sometimes modern discussions of reason and knowledge and so on, they're, they're very often making assumptions about what those things are from a, a narrow tradition. And one of the beauties of studying ancient, especially Greek philosophy, is that you not only see where these narrow traditions come from, they're usually picking at, at will certain strands of ancient philosophy, but you study ancient philosophy and realize, Look at all this. Look at all these choices we have. We don't have to go down just this British empiricist route. You know that was just one strand in ancient philosophy, roughly the atomistic tradition. We've got all these others as well. Mm -hmm. uh, and to uh, to go back to what I was talking about earlier uh, about the part uh, trying to relate uh, um, religion with philosophy and also with psychology because. Uh, I, I, I really think that um, I'm quite convinced about this uh, and, the, and these also are ideas that I picked up from Jordan Peterson and so on and uh, that uh, the gods, at least originally, uh, represented different aspects of human psychology. I and see. So, I uh, see. That's the Jungianism from Peterson, I gather. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah, yeah. That's right. And so, uh, what I want to arrive at with this is that uh, you start from that, and then, for example, uh, the other day I I, I told you about uh, the democratization of uh, I said auras, but then yeah. I look I looked at it again and it's Osiris, uh, the okay. democratization <laughs> of Osiris <laughs> in, in in ancient Egypt. So yeah. uh, so. Uh, uh, and I've read a bit about it again yesterday, uh, and what I picked from it is that at a certain point uh, in the history of Egypt, uh, around the, the Old Kingdom, uh, initially they, they had the... Um, uh, let's let's say that resurrection was only available to the, to the Pharaoh. And okay. then, at a certain point, we start to find uh, in the history of Egypt uh, 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 tombs of other people, like priests and people uh, a little bit uh, uh, low in the hierarchy, but, but uh, of course not slaves, <laughs> uh, Egyptian citizens, uh, that 
uh, add inscriptions in their tombs uh, related to uh, the same aspect of uh, themselves having a part of Osiris in them and being able to be resurrected in the afterlife. And so, uh, parting from this and then uh, adding uh, certain notions coming from uh, our ancient philosophers and so on, I think we can get to trace uh, the idea uh, of putting uh, uh, importance into the in, individual individual person instead of the collective and giving more and more importance to the individual uh, uh, than the, than the collective uh, the collective and so uh, if we go through this process historically uh, it's all, uh, I think it's also not true that uh, the idea that we started. Uh, human rights based on the idea of uh, individuation, let's say, from the Enlightenment onwards, because uh, this thing about having, let's say, a system of law uh, that is equal to everyone and that people have to respect and attend to, uh, uh, based on the notion that people have something inside all of them that we have yes. to respect by itself, yes. that, that is metaphysical, yes. uh, uh, is, is also a very ancient idea. And, and I mean, uh, talking about Steven Pinker again, he, he also seems to insist uh, that uh, we only have human rights now because of the work done by philosophers of the Enlightenment yes. that uh, uh, and uh, and it's it seems a bit anachronistic because uh, it seems that for him the idea of the uh, what is individual uh, comes from that time and uh, I mean it's it's yeah. a very long and historical process. Yeah, oh, well, so much to say there. I mean, uh, what comes immediately to my mind was uh, the word slave that you mentioned when you were still talking about Egypt and how you, you said, well, but not for slaves, obviously, and you chuckled. That not, that, that's typical of, of antiquity. But here's one way in which Plato is quite radical. So his dialogue, the Mino, and this could be more Socrates than Plato, and they're hard to distinguish in a dialogue like that. But in the dialogue, the Mino, Socrates wants to demonstrate uh, something about his method to the freeborn, you know, interlocutors, the people with whom he's speaking who are freeborn and educated. And uh, the, the idea is that, um, you know, the, famously, people have knowledge already within them and that true teaching is not putting information into somebody's mind, it's rather eliciting from the, the knowledge that they already have. And, you know, you think about it, what would be the most radical demonstration of the truth of that, if it's a universal truth about being a human being, well, take somebody who's totally uneducated. Because after all, if you start interrogating uh, an Athenian freeborn male who's had an, a, a pretty rich education, then who's to know whether he hasn't learned that fact already? So what, he, what Socrates does is he interrogates a slave. And, uh, you know, it's a, it's a uh, I'll say, uh, complex, because it's sort of complex without drawing a diagram, but it's a, it's a pretty simple geometrical demonstration. It's roughly the Pythagorean theorem that he's demonstrating, and that's, that's significant in ways we can talk about in a moment. But 
you know, he's, he's teaching roughly the Pythagorean theorem to a slave, but he doesn't say, I'm now going to tell you what the Pythagorean theorem is. You need to know this. You need to know that. You put together those two things and you get this result. He doesn't, that's not how he proceeds. He just starts asking the slave questions. So he draws a diagram in the sand of a square. He asks him how big, uh, how much um, area that square covers. And then he doubles the length of the sides of the square and then asks him, how much area does this new square cover? And the slave says, double. You know, if before it was two, now it's uh, four. Before it was uh, uh, four, now it's eight, or whatever. And that's wrong. Uh, you know, again, if I had a diagram, I could show you. But uh, Socrates uh, then starts asking him a series of questions that reveal to the slave that the slave has made a mistake. Now, Socrates doesn't say, you made a mistake. He just asks him some questions. The slave gives the answers, and then he realizes, Oh, wait, well, the answer I gave before can't be right. And then Socrates asks him some more questions that get him to the point where he gives the correct area of the bigger square. Again, it's debatable whether Socrates asked leading questions that implanted the answer or not, but the idea is that by asking the right questions, you can first get someone who thinks he knows something to recognize that he doesn't know it. And then once you've gotten to that state of so-called Socratic ignorance, that is the humility to recognize other things you don't know, that you don't know them, you can then ask a series of questions that will elicit the knowledge that's already there. You clear away the detritus, you get to a kind of blank slate, if you like, but in fact, it turns out it's not blank. The, the knowledge is already there. And if it works for anything, it works for mathematics. You're not going to be able to elicit from someone, you know, implicit knowledge about the piece of Westphalia. It's just, that's not the kind of thing that we know, according to Plato. But the forms, as he calls them, and, you know, math is a good example of what he's talking about, immaterial, eternal realities, Plato thinks that we've got a previous contact with those, uh, in, uh, with which we still have a kind of contact, and if we can overcome our uh, arrogance in thinking that we know what justice is, or courage is, or temperance is, and so on, through a series of questions that humble us, then we can be ready for a true education, which would, again, lead us to recognize what we already know. So, a roundabout way of saying, I'm not sure I would be willing to say that there are human rights in antiquity as we understand them post-British liberalism, but I would agree that there are antecedents and building blocks of the British uh, political philosophy, and one of them would be this idea that even a slave has had contact with the forums, uh, and you know, with the right questions can be brought to the kind of knowledge that philosophers are privileged to have as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Uh, and we also can include here, for example, evolutionary psychology. And because we now know that people uh, are born with the sense of an in-group an in and an out-group. Uh -huh. and, and it is primarily through this process of reasoning and uh, this rational process that, yes. that we come to a point where we start to think well. Uh, if, if I think for myself that I have these rights and that I should be treated yes. uh, well by other people, uh, then through a rational process, I can't justify these without expanding it to other people, like, for example, Peter Singer, ta Peter Singer talks about in The Expanding Circle, right? Okay, well, my thought was a different one. I'm not disagreeing with you. But my thought was um, this book by Mercier and Sperber, uh, Hugo Mercier and Dan Sperber. It's called The Enigma of Reason. And I wrote about it for Quillette uh, in pieces that I published in December. But 
I was persuaded. It's an evolutionary account, a Darwinian account of reason, and informed by social psychology and so on. And their account is that reason is inherently social, so that the idea of the individual reasoner who is faced with the world and reality and kind of goes out and does scientific experiments, let's say, and is, is motivated to find out the true nature of, of, of the world, that that's not, in fact, how human reason works, that human reason evolved socially and so not surprisingly has social purposes, and they have a very good explanation of, say, confirmation bias, which they call my side bias, mm. that, um, you know, we are, 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 the longest period of our evolutionary history was spent in these small bands or tribes, and, uh, you know, as a result, there wasn't the individual doing scientific experiments, there were tribes trying to make decisions upon which their life or death depended, and it was most efficient to divide labor, to have one camp who believed uh, one thing should be done, and have another camp who believed some, the opposite should be done, and have each of them reasoning with confirmation bias to produce the best case they can for those alternatives, and then to present those to a tribal council, if you like, who makes the decision. That, that you divide the cognitive labor that way. Uh, and so that would, that would be good for the survival of that tribe. And then as a result, that's kind of the program that we all have for reason. Uh, but that creates problems when we try to reason individually because now our confirmation bias is uh, not corrected, or at least unless we meet the, the person who has the alternate hypothesis and we're arguing before a tribal council, the, the sort of the purpose of that adaptation is lost. But you can see in there an explanation for the kind of phenomenon we talked about earlier under the name of Jonathan Haidt with the, the elephant and the rider, that that's the purpose of reason. Okay. Um, but we have to be careful here, and again, I think Plato, uh, you know, allows us to step above this and sort of see a complexity that, I, as I have, I, I don't see present in those debates that we were talking about earlier, that um, if we're talking about reason as those two camps, how they're operating, then uh, it's, it's good to talk about confirmation bias. But if they're being brought before a tribal council, well, if the tribal council is just operating according to confirmation bias as well, then we, we're, we're not going to get to what we should do according to the way the, the world really is. So there's got to be another way of operating with reason, which is where you're not invested in uh, the, the truth or falsity of one of those positions, but rather you're listening to them, uh, we would say, objectively and trying to find out what's right. And what Plato gives, uh, to my satisfaction at any rate, is an accommodation of social reason. Uh, so he's got a part of the soul which is primarily concerned with that, the, the, the middle part of the soul, if you like, which is primarily concerned with social status. And it, can, it has its own mode of reason. Because again, reason is not just a separate thing in the soul that then serves desires. For Plato, every reason is its own motivation. So for Plato, you've got some reason, a kind of reason that's motivated to achieve social status, but then you've got this other kind of reason which is motivated to pursue the truth and to find the, the real good. And those are in conflict in the human being. Uh, so I think, as I, as I said earlier, just to, to return it, Jonathan Haidt is, is doing a very good job of describing social status-motivated reasoning, just as Mercier and Sperber are doing as well. And the Darwinian account seems to me right, but they, you can't make sense of what they, the scientists, are doing unless you have a notion of reason that's aimed to get uh, th things right for their own sake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but then again, Jonathan Hyde uses group selection. 
contrary to many people coming from evolutionary psychology, right? And David Sloan Wilson also defends it, and more recently, I think that E.O. Wilson also did it. But, okay. but, I, but, but, but I mean, uh, it seems to me that, uh, that uh, the mainstream of evolutionary psychology still rejects group selection. Yes. I see. Okay. Yeah, that's that's beyond my expertise. I mean, at that point, I just defer to uh, these thinkers. And if there's a controversy, then I, I wouldn't defer to one or the other, but to say I'm, I'll await uh, that controversy, or I'll, I'll start getting into it myself to see what my own view is. But at, at this level, I think, you know, even if even if it turns out there's not group selection, and, and what I said earlier presupposed group selection, I don't think that's relevant to the main point I'm trying to make. The main point I'm trying to make is that we need uh, a wider notion of reason one of which could accommodate what seems to be uh, a kind of consensus forming about reason being motivated, reason susceptible to confirmation bias, reason uh, pursuing social status, and say, yes, there is a kind of reason operative in human beings. Maybe it's what's operative most, if not almost all the time, but there has to be another notion of reason that's also possible, uh, because only so is science possible. Only so is science not just another instance of confirmation bias. If we can make sense of science not just as pleasing our, our ego by getting us the endowed chair at Harvard, but actually because we're motivated to find out what's true, uh, then we have to have an account of reason that makes that possible. And as I say, Plato's already got this account where you've got a part of the soul which uh, isn't dominant in most people. He doesn't think there are many philosophers in any generation, but it's there in everybody to some extent, and in some people it is dominant, that is pursuing truth for its own sake, while recognizing that there's also uh, an element of reason or a type of reason in everybody, but in some people more than in others, that's oriented primarily towards the achievement of social status. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but but nowadays, at, uh, at least nowadays in the scientific, the scientific method, uh, comes from the, okay, I will say a presupposition that we have to validate our knowledge through empirical experimentation and testing. Yes. And that's different from the traditional view that we could arrive at knowledge simply, simply through mental processes, including yeah. reason, right? Yeah. Okay, well, I think those are both right. I mean, maybe... As you stated them, they would be contradictory, but I think there's truth in both those positions. So certainly when it comes to investigating, well, how is it that people reason and the kind of studies that Mercier and Sperber cite, for example, and, and I'm sure Jonathan Haidt and others are citing as well, yeah, you need empirical results that have been winnowed through the scientific method uh, there. But what I'm also adding here is what about the legitimacy of science itself? In other words, what makes science how are we sure that science is what gets us knowledge? You can't do science to prove that science gets you knowledge. That's begging the question. So yeah, now, that, that's why I decided to call it a presupposition, right? Yeah, okay, good, good. So, you know, so we've got this precept. We have to have this presupposition that science is giving us knowledge. But we can't just, well, you could, and you could be a very good empirical scientist by just saying, well, that's my presupposition. I'm going to devote my career to studying mollusks and, and not think about, whether this is real knowledge or not. But for people uh, who want to be fully rational, who say, you know, I don't want to have anything that's merely a presupposition, they're going to look at that presupposition and say, well, is it credible? Can we think of arguments against it? 
And there's a long tradition in, in philosophy that would be considered speculative philosophy and not empirical philosophy that uh, you should be skeptical that you can get knowledge that way. Now, um, I think those arguments ultimately collapse because they're either put forward as things that we know or things that we don't know. And if we things that we don't know, then I'm not sure why we should care. If they're things that we know, then they're self-refuting. I mean, that's the kind of, um, if you like, speculative argument that Plato gives against the sophists and implicitly against the skeptics, uh, you know, in the in the fifth century, fourth century BC. Uh, that's 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 not obsolete. In other words, we can act as if scientists science gives us knowledge, and obviously we've produced as a culture in the last you know 400, 500 years these marvelous, especially technological achievements. But that doesn't prove we're getting knowledge. That proves that we're getting good at accomplishing our goals. But has our goal been knowledge? Uh, you know, Nietzsche didn't think our goal was knowledge. And uh, why, if you think Darwin is right, do you think that our goal would be knowledge? <laughs> it doesn't seem like organisms are oriented towards knowledge. They're oriented towards the survival and reproduction. Yeah, and sometimes knowledge even comes after the fact. Because, for example, if we create uh, a certain ki kind of technology, we can't really be sure beforehand that it will work. Yeah. And, the, and if it doesn't work and the model is incorrect, uh, well, could we, could we say there then that that wasn't true? Right, right. Yeah, exactly. It's not about truth. It's about, in, in, in technology, very explicitly, it's not about truth. It's about what works. If you can get to the moon based on falsehoods, if your goal is getting to the moon, well, then who cares whether it's true or false? Now, if you think that, well, you can't get to the moon unless you're right about certain things, uh, then you've got a, a view about the connection between our desires and the truth. And that's, again, a philosophical question. Why expect that our desires should be for the truth? Uh, you know, it's not obvious from a Darwinian point of view that, that that would be the case. Yeah, and that's the other problem with truth, because, uh, and this comes again from Jordan Peterson. Um, he, talk, he talks about how there's uh, two kinds of truth that we can, uh, we can consider. Uh, what, and now I, I will pick up a term coming from Brett Weinstein, uh, on one side we have the metaphorical truth, that, okay. that, that is to say, for example, if uh, when you, we were in the savannah, people tried this method or that method and they realized that, oh, this works, but we don't know really why. But right. we, know, we know that that works. That, that is a kind of truth by itself. Yes. And, and, the, and, it, and it is really true. And, okay. then, and then we have uh, the truth coming from, for example, the naturalistic approach and the scientific method, that uh, is the truth that, that explains why uh, things uh, happen and why the world works as it does and so on and so forth. Right. Yeah, uh, that seems like a good distinction to me. And, um, you know, I'm sort of thinking sympathetically with someone who wants to reject uh, many of the things that I've been saying in the last 10 or 15 minutes. And they could say, well, you know, the truth of what works, if we want to call that truth now, well, that's all we need. Uh, and I, I just don't think that's the case. I think it's become clearer and clearer that that's not true, <laughs> if you like. So, you know, let's say, take Bacon, for example, who thought, you know, the purpose of science is, is to, to give us basically technology so that we can master nature. Well, we're, 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 we're getting pretty far along in our mastery of nature, but we realize that uh, nature's pushing back and that we 
uh, need to recognize certain of its limits if we're going to last uh, on the planet, you know, for four or five centuries or however long before the kind of the environmental, serious environmental crisis that, that threatens the species. Um, so the truth of what works has to now be seen in the light of, if you like, a deeper or a higher truth, namely, if what works is what accomplishes our desires, now we should ask the question, are those good desires to have? Because what if uh, we have these desires for mastering of nature, for you know, uh, having as many resources for each individual as possible, and we develop science and technology to achieve that, as we have in the last four or five hundred years, uh, and then it gets to the point where we recognize, well, wait a second, we're on a train, and the last stop of this train is, is environmental catastrophe. Well, then we have to step up and say, well, let's just go with our original desires and so much the worse for future generations. Or we can say, maybe we had the wrong desires all along. Well, now we're asking a question that uh, I don't see recognized in that twofold distinction of truth that you attributed to Weinstein and, and Peterson. Um, this would be, which of our desires is true? Now, that's, that's a question that Steven Pinker can't ask. Uh, you know, I'm not picking on him. I'm just saying, we, you know, we talked about him and his notion of reason earlier. The instrumental notion of reason can't ask which desires are true. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, re recall the David Hume quotation, "'Tis not contrary to reason to prefer the destruction of the world to the scratching of my finger." Uh, reason, if it pursues truth, doesn't investigate desires as such. I mean, the, the truth, which desires does someone really have? What do you need to do to accomplish those desires? But whether you should have those desires and whether you should, if you have them, work so that you don't have them or that they're weaker, that's just not on the table in those discussions. But that's central in Plato's philosophy, which is sort of primarily about how to live the best life. An, an investigation of what the best life is and then once you get a rough sense of what it is, which I think Plato thinks that he's giving you a rough sense of what it is, uh, what character training best achieves that kind of life. He, just for, to give it a name, he thinks that life is called philosophy and the character training that uh, is central to achieving you know, fulfillment in the philosophical life, those are the, the, the classical virtues of courage, temperance, justice, and wisdom. And what are those? Those are certain control, taming, perhaps even elimination of desires. And that's that's entirely central to the Platonic project, but as I say, it can't even be discussed in the kind of conversations that you were referring to. Yeah, because then you have, uh, we know that we come equipped with positive sentiments and negative sentiments. Uh, yeah. And what even, again, Steven Pinker, and I think that this comes from Jefferson, if I'm not mistaken, the better angels of our nature, I think it is. Uh, Lincoln. Uh, Oh, Lincoln, yes. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. It's Lincoln, yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> sorry? I said pretty good for someone who's not an American to know the American uh, political tradition. Oh, <laughs> I try to, to read a lot, you know. <laughs> so, um, okay, okay, but, but turn, uh, turning to the question again. Uh, we have positive sentiments and negative sentiments, and then... Uh, how do we choose between them and do uh, do we know how we should choose between them uh, through a scientific approach or through a philosophical approach yeah well let me ask a more basic question and i don't know which theory you might be thinking of um, adam smith or it, it doesn't matter let me just ask the basic question what makes a negative sentiment negative or what makes a positive sentiment positive in other words what gives value to sentiments at all 
Yeah, yeah, that's also another question because, for example, we can think that uh, if we didn't have the um, the sentiment of vengeance, perhaps we would let other people uh, take advantage or of, of us and other people uh, and don't put them into place. Uh, and if uh, uh, and if that were to expand in yes. a certain society, then yes. that would uh, the uh, the society would erode completely. Yes, good. And um, I mean, so that's an excellent example of the kind of general point that I was trying to make, which uh, I gather you get completely, which is that to give evaluations of anything, you've got to presuppose a normative framework, a, a framework of what's good and what's bad. And science doesn't give us that. <laughs> science not only doesn't give us that, unless science sort of implicitly presupposes that pursuing the truth is good, which I, I think implicitly it does in its practice, but it, that it itself can't account for, then we've got, unless we're just going to go with our presuppositions, we've got to have a rational inquiry into goodness and badness, you know, what, what is really good as opposed to what merely appears good. And uh, science is just not equipped for that. It describes, it doesn't prescribe. Yeah, and now we get into the is-ought dichotomy, right? Yes. That, uh, that I think the first people that enunciated it was David Hume, right? In the uh, yeah, so a lot of a lot of the stuff that Hume gets credit for, I mean, he's a great philosopher, but a lot of the stuff he gets credit for is actually in Sextus Empiricus, uh, in antiquity. Mm. Yeah, first okay. century, second century A.D. Um, so I believe the is-ought distinction is in Sextus Empiricus. But you're right that David Hume is the, is the, the, the canonical, you know, the passage that people go to, to to talk about that. Yeah, so, I mean, it's this critique that I'm making of science, it's not from an anti-scientific point of view. One of the so-called central figures of the Enlightenment uh, it highlighted it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'm just going to read the specific passage he has in the book, a Treatise of Human Nature, just okay. for us to get sure. into the isot dichotomy. Sure. And, the, and uh, okay, quote, uh, in every system of morality which I have it or to met with, I have always remarked that the author proceeds from some time in the ordinary way of reasoning and mm -hmm. establishes the being of a god or makes observations concerning human affairs. When of a sudden I am surprised to find that instead of the usual copulations of propositions, is and is not, I meet with no proposition that is not connected with a not or a not-not. This change is imperceptible, but is, however, of the last consequence. But as this ought or ought-not expresses some relation or affirmation, this necessary, it should be observed and explained, and at the same time that the reason should be given for what seems altogether inconceivable, how this new relation can be a deduction from others which are entirely different from it. But as authors, do not commonly use this precaution, I shall presume to recommend it to the readers, and am persuaded that this small attention would subvert all this, the vulgar systems of morality, and let us see that the distinction of vice and virtue is not founded merely on the relations of objects, nor is perceived by reason. Okay. So it's an excellent critique of a certain view of the world that uh, David Hume sees many of the philosophers of his era and the era just before him holding. So I want to you know, credit it. But 
it, it's not a critique of all philosophies. So again, uh, you know, ancient philosophy gives us a wider perspective here. Now, uh, let's so let's just go back to the ancient philosophers for a moment. Uh, uh, two types. Uh, let's take the atomists again, who think that the world is nothing but atoms and void. And you know, the Epicureans are the ones who who make this famous in later philosophy. Uh, if, if the world is just atoms and void, uh, you're giving a description, maybe it's an accurate description, uh, but there's no value in that world. And so Hume's is odd critique applies very well to that world. So if Lucretius, uh, this atomist, this Epicurean, if he's saying, as he does, the beginning of his poem, you know, the world's just atoms and void, and then sort of uh, imperceptibly, as Hume says, starts moving into, well, this is what you should do. That is what you shouldn't. You ought not do this. You ought to do this. I mean, Lucretius gives you advice about how to be a, a, in a happy marriage, for example. Uh, well, that's a problem. How do you get from a, a world that has no value, namely one of mere atoms and void? There's no goodness and badness in a world of mere atoms and void. How do you get from a world of no value to prescriptions, ought, ought not, should, should not, about how you should live? Now, that's that's a serious problem for the Epicureans, and, and they have things to say. They think, for example, well. Uh, uh, certain combinations of atoms to, to, to make to accrued reduction, those are pleasant, and other combinations are painful. And if you're like me and you want to live a pleasant life, well, I'm recommending to you what you should do because ultimately it's going to give you the uh, right arrangement of atoms, again, to be crude. But notice that's not a, a, a true ought. That's a, if you want this, do this. Compare that for the moment, and, and that's sort of t a typical approach of uh, of of modern philosophy. But compare that to Aristotle. Now, I'm a non-Aristotelian, but here it makes a really nice contrast. Aristotle thought, well, the world's not atoms and void. And he had many, many good criticisms of atomism. So he's not just saying, I'm offering an alternative. He rejects atomism for quite good reasons, and then he offers an alternate account. And in his alternate account, uh, every instance of matter is informed. That is to say, it's got, you know, again, simply a shape. But uh, Form is more than just shape. Uh, take an animal, and uh, as you mentioned earlier, he's a biologist, and this is really where this thought is coming from, that animals are not just a bunch of matter stuck together. So if you have a raccoon, for example, it's not just you take a bunch of fur, you take a bunch of claws, you just stick it together, and you've got a raccoon. Rather, it's stuck together, if you like, in a certain way, and the way in which it's stuck together is always serving the purpose. It's never stuck. I mean, it, it develops in, a, in, a, in the uterus of, a, of a, a raccoon mother, but always for a purpose. That is to say, there's a, a kind of program, if you like, that arranges the matter and orients it towards a purpose. And in the Greek, that's a telos, a goal or an end. And the reason why I mentioned it is Aristotle has this view about nature that it's teleological. That is, the things in it have inherent goals. And he thinks this is clearest in the case of organisms. So, you know, return to the raccoon. If the raccoon has an inherent goal, and, you know, when I teach this, I just say, like, let's just assume that the telos of raccoons is, is getting into trash cans and eating pizza. So, let, you know, obviously that's not, not the purpose of a raccoon, but whatever it would be. If that's its inherent goal, well, then it should, in any instance that it can do that, do that, because written into the nature of what it is, is that purpose. So to move from a description of the raccoon to a prescription about what the raccoon should do is not um, an, an illicit move from an is to an ought, because the, the description itself 
has value. It's not just, again, for the contract, it's not just atoms and void. It's, if you like, atoms and void or matter imbued with an inherent, innate, natural purpose. So that's Aristotle's worldview. And as a result, you know, I, I think he's wrong about a lot of things uh, because I'm a Platonist, but um, Hume's critique, however well it applies to Epicureanism and the, the modern philosophies like Hobbes, for example, and so on, that are downstream from that, uh, it doesn't apply to Aristotle. I mean, he might have other critiques of Aristotle, but the Aristotelian can just look at him and blink and say, I can very legitimately go from an is to a not. Mm -hmm. Right. And, and then we have the point coming from mainly Sam Harris in the modern landscape where he, sees, uh, where he says something along the lines of, oh, we, if we gather enough information about us, about the universe, about the world, about other animals, and so on and so forth, if we amass a nearly infinite amount of information, then we could put that information running, I don't know where, perhaps in big data systems or, or, so, or something like that, to yeah. treat that information, and we could get a result that would be along a moralistic line to tell us how we should behave and things like that, but but I, I mean that doesn't follow, right? No, no, exactly. If 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 uh, if, you, if you assume as the Epicureans do that it's a world of atoms and void, then acquiring all the information uh, you like about the world will never tell you how you should live in it. If you presume that you want to pursue pleasure. Uh, of a certain sort, bodily pleasure, let's say. Well, then your computer can tell you what you should do to achieve your goal. But the question, should that be your goal? That's not uh, yeah, a question. Yeah. That's not a question a computer could ever answer. Now, Aristotle thinks there is an answer for that question. You should, uh, if if you are living a life devoted to the bodily appetites, that should not be your goal. Your goal should instead be the pursuit of well, philosophy, because he's got arguments that. Um, that's a greater and, and deeper and more true pleasure than uh, the pleasure of bodily appetites. Uh, and that's because he's got a view of the human being as having a, an inherent purpose, so you're living out your purpose. And also, like Plato, he thinks that the world is suffused with value, so that the answer to what you should and shouldn't do is in the world. Uh, and so by doing, if you like, scientific study in the broadest sense, you can find out what you should be doing. I mean, if I just add a footnote here, one of the reasons I'm not an Aristotelian is that I think Darwin refutes Aristotle uh, when it comes to biological organisms, because I think once you absorb the Darwinian lesson, you see that the organisms don't have inherent purposes. They're the results of this blind uh, process of natural and sexual selection, so that Aristotle was looking for the purposes in the wrong places. As a Platonist, I think there, there is value in the world, there are purposes in the world, but that they're not found at the level of bodies. Mm -hmm. and, and I mean, if you don't have a moralistic framework set in motion on, or in society and so on, uh, I mean, it could even be considered rational for someone to sit all day and explore other people because, I mean, why not? Yeah, sure. <laughs> and from a Darwinistic perspective, it's rational to do that. I mean, if other people would bring you food and water and yeah. other kinds of supplies, and, yes. and if they would bring you pleasure, all the pleasure that yeah. you would like, and if you could uh, reprodu reproduce yourself anyway, I mean, why not? 
<laughs> well, that's an illustration of the David Hume quotation that I've, I, this will be the third time I said it now, tis not contrary to reason to prefer the, the destruction of the world to the scratching of my finger, right? If that's my goal, if I don't want to have a scratched finger, then it's rational for me to choose the destruction of the whole world, you know, aside from myself, perhaps. Uh, and and then I, I want to to make a bridge here with something with the way Yuval Noah Harari in *Sapiens* uh, describes religion, because we've been talking about uh, core values coming from the Enlightenment, like okay. individualism uh, and reason and science and so on and so forth. And we already talked about how saying that. Uh, uh, and uh, the Enlightenment is where we can we should put their origins is incorrect. The, the those ideas are much more ancient than that. But uh, but then in *Sapiens*, uh, for example, the definition that Yuval Harari gives of religion is the following: uh, Religion can thus be defined as a system of human norms and values that is founded on a belief in a superhuman super order. This involves two distinct criteria. Religions hold that there is a superhuman order, which is not the product of human whims or agreements. Professional football is not a religion, because despite its many, its many laws, rites, and often bizarre rituals, everyone knows that human beings invented football themselves. And FIFA may at any moment enlarge the size of the goal or cancel the offside rule. Uh, the second point, based on this superhuman order, religion establishes norms and values that it considers binding. Many Westerners today believe in ghosts, fairies and reincarnation, but these beliefs are not a source of, of moral and behavioral standards. As such, they do not constitute a religion. And some lines uh, below that, he says, a religion must possess two further qualities. First, it must espouse a universal superhuman order that is true always and everywhere. Second, it must insist on spreading this belief to everyone. In other words, it would be universal and missionary. So couldn't we say that, uh, for example, uh, these ideas of treating humans as individuals, uh, of the value of reason and science and so on, according to this definition, uh, could be constituted as a sort of religion because they are based on certain presuppositions and, they all, uh, and people who espouse them also say, as in this, defini uh, in this definition, that he, he, they should extend to encompass the entire humanity, right? Okay, so it seems to me that I could have missed something, but it seemed to me there were kind of two crucial features of that definition of religion. One was that it sees a superhuman order of the world, and that it sees uh, action-guiding uh, imperatives coming down to human beings from that superhuman order. So. Yes. Uh, the reason why football doesn't count as a religion is because there's no superhuman order, and the reason why ghosts and fairies don't count as a religion is because they're not action-guiding. But you've got to have those two things together. Yes, exactly. Um, 
Okay, so my thought was, uh, as so often, is to think about, you know, what would Plato say? And take the academy when it was under his direction. This is a community of people. There's no doubt some rituals that go into it, especially from the evidence we have about ancient philosophical communities that were sort of quasi-religious, uh, like the Pythagoreans, for example, whom I mentioned earlier. And Platonism clearly has a superhuman order, the, the good at the top and the forms and so on, uh, that uh, we, we ourselves are not really human beings. We're immortal souls who are playing the roles of human beings for now in this material realm. And especially it's action guiding. So the, the best life is to be a philosopher. And if we're able to do it, then we should train to do it. And if we're not able to do it, and here's one way in which I would quibble with that definition that was given uh, Plato thinks well if you're not able to do it in this life don't worry you're gonna you're gonna go around this carousel many times and perhaps next time you come around you'll be a philosopher and you know he's got this um, doctrine of a moralized doctrine of reincarnation so that uh, if you make certain mistakes in this life if you prove to be overwhelmed by your anger and that that becomes a character flaw you'll be reincarnated as a lion or if you uh, give in too much to your bodily appetites, you'll be reincarnated as a snake because you'll be so close to the earth and so on. So whatever the comedic value of those are, I think that he did believe in reincarnation and in a moralized version of reincarnation. Uh, so again, that's just a quibble with uh, that author who thinks that reincarnation is not action guiding. I think it's actually crucial to this platonic worldview. But even if you want to leave that out for the moment... Clearly, from what we said earlier, you've got to attend to the justice of your soul, the courage of your soul, the temperance of your soul, so that you can achieve wisdom, which is the goal of, of philosophy, which is ultimately an escape from embodiment to this spiritual realm of, of eternal forms. So Platonism then would count as a religion. I, again, I'm not refuting the definition. I'm just, I'm just sort of playing off it because I'm hearing it for the first time. Is it, would, would that seem right to you? Yeah, yeah, I think it is. But, but I was trying to put, put to put it more along these lines that um, uh, okay. What I wanted to say is that uh, if you go along with this definition, uh, and we we can also reject it, and we already sure. talked about this earlier, uh, that. Uh, the values espoused by uh, the figures of the Enlightenment and nice. by a majority of people now, I would say, uh, yes. don't, uh, don't follow from uh, a scientific approach, I see. I see. but I see. rather from a moralistic, philosophical, okay. religious approach. Okay. Yeah, I, I think I'm a bit confused, so you can help me clarify what I'm thinking. Um, you know, I, just back to what I was saying about the Platonism, not to harp on it, because it's just sort of how I'm orienting myself in this conversation, that yeah. if, if we grant that Platonism, as I described, is a religion, and it sounds like it would meet those criteria, it's not a religion like, say, Christianity, where you've got to accept certain things on faith and trust that, uh, you know, in the afterlife, the, the truth of these will be revealed to you or whatever. There's no element... A very, very little element of faith in Platonism. So it's mm -hmm. simultaneously a religion by those criteria, but also, if you like, a cult of reason. And, yeah. uh, and in that sense, scientific. I mean, it's going to uh, condone scientific experiments. You get that in uh, of a sort in, in Aristotle, or at least attention to empirical data, and you get it in Plato, as I mentioned at the beginning of the conversation, in the, in the dialogue Timaeus. 
it, it's more concerned with the presuppositions of the scientific inquiry, but in the broadest sense, it's, it's science, which is just scientia Latin for knowledge anyway. So it's, it's scientific, it's rational, and yet it's a religion. That is to say, it puts value ultimately in a superhuman order, and it orients human life behaviorally and, and according to character uh, by that uh, North Star. So uh, I guess the reason I'm bringing this up again is it seemed to me a number of dichotomies were presumed in that discussion that are not true of Platonism. So you don't get the faith versus reason dichotomy. You don't get the science versus ghosts dichotomy and so on.